The city of Boston and its largest police union agreed on an $82 million collective bargaining agreement this month, and the number isn't nearly as interesting as what's under the hood. For decades, negotiations between the city and its law enforcement and first responders unions has been a tough process, and any concessions were hard won, if at all, and bad blood often still lingered. More than 20 years ago now, in an incident Boston's politicos still talk about, a firefighter protesting Mayor Thomas Menino's State of the City address actually spat on the mayor's wife. But it might be a new dawn, a new day. The new police contract includes changes to police detail rules and lists criminal offenses that can't just be pushed off to arbitration to overturn discipline, and no one has hurled any spittle so far. During these often contentious negotiations, Mayor Michelle Wu had an ace, a labor whisperer, if you will, up her sleeve. I'm Jennifer Smith. And I'm Gim Dumchess. And this is The Codcast, Commonwealth Beacon's podcast about policy and civic life here in Massachusetts. And today we're talking to Lou Mandarini, Boston Mayor Michelle Wu's senior advisor for labor. Lou, thanks for being here. Hi, Jennifer. Again, thank you for uh, having me. Well, I'll, I'll get right to it. Uh, if, if you can kind of start a little bit uh, by telling, telling us about your background and how you, uh, how you met the mayor. Well, I... Um... My background is I come from a labor family on both sides uh, and have kicked around the labor movement doing a lot of stuff for a long time. I was a partner, a labor uh, lawyer, a partner here at a firm in Boston called Siegel Whiteman, uh, and then ran a series of benefit funds for construction unions, pension, annuity, health insurance. And prior to that, I was a a communications flack for the AFL-CIO before law school, so I been around the labor movement a long time, doing a lot uh, of different things. I uh, first met the mayor when we sat next to each other on Senator Elizabeth Warren's campaign in 2012. So why end up taking this job? And as a side note, by the way, why do all the labor folks seem to want to be journalists first? Uh, I I would be remiss if I didn't do a hat tip to Mass AFL-CIO head Chrissy Lynch and also National AFL-CIO President Liv Schuler, both of whom went to journalism school. So what happened there, Lou? Well, I think the great the great secret is that uh, I think I made eighteen thousand dollars a year in that journalism job, and I think I paid ninety percent of my health insurance. So that'll do it. I learned fairly on uh, as a worker advocate, not only for other workers but for myself, that that wasn't a great gig. So I moved on rather quickly. No kidding. And so labor has really been on, you know, a lot of folks' minds for the past few years and really in the news, in part because of the pandemic. It's raised a lot of issues about kind of workers' rights and and, uh, working environments. But even within labor spaces, there's often disagreement about different types of unions, you know, a police association versus a service workers union, uh, the private sector split. And so the Boston Police Patrolmen's Association, which we're going to talk about a bit today, isn't affiliated, for instance, with the AFL-CIO or the Greater Boston Labor Council, unlike, say, the teachers unions. So for folks who aren't familiar with the different types here, can you explain to a layperson what's different about negotiations with police and first responders unions rather than negotiations with other types of unions? Well, I think there are a couple of things. I mean, your larger point, which speaks to sort of cultural and historical factors rather than anything specifically about labor law. I mean, that's a that's an age old debate in the labor movement about whether police unions are part of the labor movement or not, you know, and that has an awful lot to do um, with the notion that the police are often the ones that are enforcing law and order on picket lines. And so while they may not be aligned with management uh, of a given enterprise, they are not necessarily aligned with people who are striking and all that. 
I don't think, I mean, we in the Wu administration, I don't think, um, we don't particularly honor that because our police and our police unions are as much uh, members of the labor movement as anyone else. And we treat them with the same regard uh, that we do all of our workers and all of our labor organizations in the city, which is that these are workers who do a hard job uh, and they deserve the same candor and forthrightness and directness and bargaining that any other union does. And on the, the BPPA uh, in particular, I, I think the, you know, for some folks, you know, they were watching the negotiations. Obviously, they were happening behind the closed doors, but there was people um, whispers about what was happening. And, and, you know, there was talk about the arbitration. So it was kind of surprising to people that a deal was reached in part because of the history of the BPPA. They're, they're you know, going back to the Kevin White administration, their newsletter had information from the John Birch Society. So um, what was what was kind of uh, different about uh, this process uh, versus obviously, you know, the last uh, 40, 40 to 50 years? Well, I mean, I think um, we're in a different moment. I mean, for one thing, I mean, I think the most direct situation is, I think, the killing of George Floyd. I think the, the move uh, to reform on the federal level, on the state level with, you know, the post commission, uh, the city level with OPAT, you know, and a mayor that was elected with an enormous mandate uh, for change. I mean, the climate uh, out there uh, is pushing in a different direction. You know, the great, I think I would say the great thing about, you know, this mayor uh, in this negotiation or any other negotiation is she just does not enter this from an adversarial posture. It's just not, you know, the way she sees this or sort of questioning the motives of the people on the other side. I mean, there's stuff that we need. There's stuff that we need to get. She was clear. She was forceful. She was steadfast about that over the course of 18 months. These are the reforms we need. We listened to what the police had to say about what they need, uh, the BPPA. And then we had a good faith, um, you know, give and take. So I think I would say making the most of the moment, you know, which there is a climate uh, and a need for police reform and changing the way we do things. I would say this mayor's just general disposition with respect to the way she approaches bargaining with all unions. And I would say the third piece of it that I think is important, which is unusual, it's not something that the city had done before, was integrating community for the first time into the bargaining process. So, you know, we took meetings with activists, religious leaders, community activists, about what they wanted to see in a police contract. And we kept them apprised of what we were doing, what our priorities were, why we had those priorities. We listened to you know what those folks had to say about what they wanted to see and what they needed. You know, when we reached the agreement, we briefed those folks, we talked to those folks all along. So I think, you know, it really is the the three legs of the stool. I think we're in a we're in a moment of reform. Uh, we have a mayor that approaches bargaining in a different way, and we have the community involved. I guess I would say a fourth thing, we had a willing partner. I mean, that's pretty important, too. Yeah, that was kind of the the place that came to mind next was what's the kind of tenor that sort of instinctively seems to form when there's this level of public scrutiny? You know, we're thinking about protests. There were kind of calls for defunding the police in the middle of all of this, um, even within the city itself, kind of thinking of city councilors were really angling for, for pretty extreme kind of reforms to the system and the policy. So how do you kind of both 
take that into account from an external perspective, knowing there are a lot of eyes on you in this moment, and then also kind of try and keep the temperature low at the bargaining table practically? Well, I mean, I think the one ironclad rule, don't demonize your opponent. I mean, that's just, but if you want to have successful labor relations, and it's two sides, I think, of the same coin, but, you know, don't demonize your opponent. Don't question your opponent's motives. I mean, I, I actually am slipping here by even saying opponent, but person on the other side of the table, you know, don't question their motives. Don't don't assume ill intent or, you know, malevolent motives. Sit down, talk about the problems that you have, what you need, what they need, you know, the mutual difficulties that we both have you know one of the one of the stories that remains untold in this police contract or at least it hasn't gotten as much attention as other things I and mean, this longevity program that we've adopted here that you know the fire department has had for a long time goes to a very specific problem which is that we've lost a tremendous number of patrolmen uh in the last three years i think the bpd in the city council hearing cited 22 patrol officers just in 2022 who left to go to the fire department. So I think one of the things that we did when we sat down was genuinely approach the BPPA from a posture of what's going on and how do we solve problems? How do we solve that problem that's a problem for you and a problem for us? So I think that problem solving, creative problem solving, and always assuming you know, until there's reason not to, that people are operating in good faith is the key to what we do. You know, I'm glad you brought up that aspect of the of the contract. Uh, I, I wanted to kind of delve into some of the other stuff too with, I mean, with, with details, um, you know, that's something that's been pursued since, you know, at least the Kevin White days. And there were, there were studies even back then about it was a good idea to open up uh, details uh, beyond just uh, uh, po- police patrolmen. So can, can you explain a little bit of kind of uh, what, what the contract uh, does in terms of opening up details um, sure. and, and, uh, and, and why that's a good thing? Well, um, there's actually a lot uh, of reform uh, of the paid detail system. I mean, the thing that's gotten the most attention is uh, opening up to other sources of labor, including, uh, you know, potentially civilians uh, or including civilians, I should say, not potentially. But it's more important to discuss. I mean, this is a stem to stern sort of uh, reworking of the pay detail system. So, you know, one of the the big problem we sought to solve when we started this um, was the question of making sure that the details that we need covered are covered. And so that is major construction projects. Think North Washington Street Bridge in Charlestown. Think the garage on Boylston Street and Mass Ave. You know, major projects in very busy intersections and very busy parts of town. Major events. So Red Sox games, TD Bank, North Garden, concert venues, that kind of thing. You know, there are just higher priority details that need to be covered that historically in the city haven't been covered because the way it works with the four police unions, I mean, prior to this contract is that, you know, officers who want to do details in their off time uh, get to choose. They get to choose which details they work. So what we've done here is change that such that there are type one, which are higher priority details that have to be worked first and then type two details, which are everything else. So the, the type ones are, you know, those busy intersections on what are called red line streets. There are events of 5,000 or more people, and then there are emergencies. So those have to be done first, uh, and we hope to bargain the same reforms into the other three police contracts. 
And then the other piece of the, the, the detail reform, there are two other big pieces. The second is the hierarchy of labor. So, you know, this is a recognition that by most estimates, 40% of details don't go worked. Uh, they go unworked. So, you know, clearly we do not have um, enough officers to staff all the details. We haven't had in a long time. And so opening up uh, the detail system to other folks who can do it, other folks who can be trained, other folks who can earn, you know, a decent amount of money. So civilians have gotten all the attention, but, you know, our uh, municipal police uh, here in City Hall, our municipal security guards, that's a remarkably diverse workforce here in City Hall. You know, the opportunity for those folks to be able to pick up a detail or two a week is life-changing. So it's it's not only civilians which have gotten the most attention, but, you know, BHA police have the opportunity to do it, potentially college and university police, retirees. I mean, the, the notion of the hierarchy is ensuring that we have enough labor to actually support the new system that we've built, which is that the high priority details need to be covered and covered first. And the way to ensure that is to make sure that you have enough labor to do it. And then the third reform, I think, with respect to paid details that's worth flagging is ending the concept of a roll-up. And so that is a situation on a detail, you know, where a detail ends early uh, and an officer can pick up another detail and effectively be paid twice for the same amount of time. With respect to the detail system, we ended that, you know, with this negotiation. And that's just a, I mean, that was a practice that, you know, bothered a lot of people and justifiably so. So what was making some of these detail changes such a sticking point? You know, the, some of these are building on reforms and changes that have been in place for more than a decade, but have kind of like struggled to be implemented. So so what was the tension there? Well, I mean, I think the tension, um, look, I think it's a bedrock principle, you know, for unions, whether you're a steel worker or a laborer or a carpenter or a longshoreman, you know, unions uh, exist to protect their members and protect the work they do. You know, often in, in other settings, it's called jurisdiction. I, I think they, you know, the notion of sort of losing the opportunity to do work um, or losing jurisdiction for stuff that you do, you know, it's often, it's a difficult one for unions. But I mean, that crashed into a particular difficulty we have here in the city of Boston, that we have details that are going unfilled. It's unsafe for our work crews. It's unsafe for our own city employees. It's unsafe for everyone. To have a situation where, you know, these details that need to be filled are not filled. It's, uh, you know, it's disruptive in terms of traffic for, you know, people who want to get around town. So the notion that, you know, this is our work and, you know, there, there was in the collective bargaining agreement, a prohibition that anyone other than a sworn officer could perform this work. There's a city ordinance that a sworn officer has to be in any construction or utility detail. I mean, that sort of like, that is our work. Uh, and we own it, crashed into the reality of where we are in the city of Boston. And that's the, again, I mean, the wonderful thing about, you know, this mayor who staked out the territory and enunciated the principles and enunciated the goals that we were going after is that, you know, we can't have these debates that just chase our tail and go nowhere. I mean, saying it's our work, saying that nobody else can do it, when that means that the work isn't getting done, details aren't getting filled, Things, you know, we're compromising the safety of, of workers and our own workers and construction workers around for the principle that, you know, it's there. 
those kind of nostrums are what you know this mayor is great at questioning and and, and probing and how we made the progress we made um, I, I want to ask about another aspect of the of the contract arbitration but before this contract what did the process look like if an officer was terminated for you know let's let's say uh armed robbery or what one of the things on the on the list but i'll i'll let you kind of lay out the before and and after that that the contract is implementing yeah i mean i think i mean this one's this one's a little bit more direct which is to say since the principle of just cause came into the bppa contract in 1994 in a jlmc award um there have been no limits on the ability of an outside arbitrator to second guess the implementation of discipline by the police commissioner. So that is to say, whatever the offense is, you know, just cause is a wide ranging concept that brings in a lot of stuff. So, you know, there were no limits, I think is the direct answer to your question. And so that was what is different. You know, now we have a list of serious offenses that we remove the possibility of going to arbitration. So I think the direct answer to your question is, there were no limits before, and there are now limits. So there, it's a list of about 30 offenses, but there, there's things that, that aren't on there. I believe the city council, when they had a hearing on the contract, they brought up, uh, you know, domestic violence is not, is not on that list. Is that something that could be added in the future, in future negotiations, or in terms of leaving stuff out, leaving stuff in? Where, where, where's, that, uh, where's that line for future contracts? Yeah, I mean, I think it's 100% our intention to grow that list uh, and to reach some of the things that we didn't necessarily reach in this. I mean, I should say, you know, that list is not, uh, that is not the list that says everything else is okay. That's the list that we were able to reach through collective bargaining. And, you know, the, the, the notion of collective bargaining, when we talked about dealing with our labor partners, you know, if I wrote the book, would I have a list that was a lot more expansive? I mean, if there were no limitations on what we could and couldn't do, and we didn't have to deal with a bargaining partner and the give and take of collective bargaining, would we have had a lot more stuff on that list? Yes, we would have, unquestionably. But the process of collective bargaining is a give and take. It's a situation where you get as much as you can, you know, you take it in piece by piece, and you plant a marker for the future. I, I think what is important to know about this list and this collective bargaining agreement is that this administration has laid down the marker that reform will be conducted through collective bargaining. We got as much as we could, you know, in this particular contract, you know, and that is represented in that list of offenses. There certainly are things that aren't on that list of offenses that we're going to pursue in the future. But, you know, that is a pretty robust start uh, to a situation where there are no limitations whatsoever prior to the time we started. And how much of what ended up making that list was informed by, again, sort of the the public eye here? Uh, many of them dealt with, for instance, crimes against a child. So in thinking about sort of what kind of made that list first, were there any sort of public mandates that you were really keeping in mind at that time? Yeah, I mean, I think I don't want to give the impression that the list was entirely about sort of overturning uh, post, you know, after the fact cases that we lost. I mean, that's not what it was about. I mean, it was about a much larger principle, which is that, you know, the police commissioner has great authority under the police commissioner statute. The police commissioner and, you know, the command staff know the most about what kind of police department they want to build and what's important in an officer and, you know, what is, uh, you know, the kind of officer that we don't want to be here. So, I mean, there are two things. I mean, yes, there are particular cases as, 
as the mayor cited in, in all of her comments over 18 months, and certainly when we un unveiled you know, this contract, the case of Patrick Rose looms large in the history of the BPD. I mean, that's a situation where that officer had a sustained finding back in 1996 and was nonetheless allowed to continue in the department. I mean, it is the kind of thing that, you know, in this day and age, shocks the conscience that that was allowed to happen. So our our animating principle in what we were doing here, I mean, we, we always had that case in the front of our mind with what we were doing. Um, you know, that that kind of a situation can never happen, just can't happen. So we're, we're kind of getting to, uh, towards the end uh, here, and, and you've been involved in negotiations for, for a long time over your career. How, how has your uh, approach evolved over the, the course of all these uh, uh, negotiations? And especially with, I mean, you came in with 40, uh, more than 40 uh, contracts that expired. So uh, especially in this two-year period, it's been a lot. So can you tell us a little bit about how your uh, approach evolved? Yeah, I mean, I... I... Look, I think the, the approach evolved from the standpoint of um, contract negotiations. In our administration, contract negotiations are not about brain-dead combat. We're just not going to do that. Uh, that is not what the mayor is about. The mayor is about problem solving. The mayor is about reform. The mayor is about bringing the change that she promised. And so I think the thing is that we were clear. I mean, we were clear about a whole bunch of principles. I mean, we were clear, you know, with this, whether it was the teacher's contract or the school bus driver's contract or the custodians and BPS. I mean, every contract we sit down to negotiate, the BPPA, Local 718, we're clear about what we need. We're clear about what our goals are. We're also clear that these workers, I mean, whether they are police or they are firefighters or they are, you know, parks department workers or health commission workers. I mean, these are the people who make the city run. I mean, that's the principle from which we start all of our collective bargaining negotiations is a respect for the fact that these people get up every day and they do a job that makes the city of Boston run. And we never forget that when we sit down at the table, you know, that these are people who are out there making it happen. And I would also say that, you know, being clear about the principles, being clear about what it is you want to achieve. I mean, I'll cite in the BPPA contract, um, it was a document that the mayor promulgated when she was running a blueprint for collective bargaining reform, you know, through police contracts. We achieved in this contract several different aspects of what the, you know, the mayor had proposed back when she was a candidate. Uh, so I think clarity of what you want to achieve. We had a plan. We had a policy. I think, you know, using the bully pulpit uh throughout the 18 months to be absolutely clear i mean the mayor never wavered on the question of we will not sign a contract that does not have fundamental reform and then actually being able to deliver it so i mean i think this is an enormous success because of the leadership we have um we had a willing partner we had a good attitude about the way we do collective bargaining but you know we also have a leader with a with a moral compass who knows what she wanted to do and we were able to do uh, and I think Gin flagged this to me before we started recording, which I appreciate, is I think you've said at some point, you know, the part of the principle here is you never really leave the table. You just stay at the table over and over and over again. So what is next on the table here? If you're trying to see what the next kind of joust is or not joust, if we don't want to frame them as opponents, um, what's next? Is it expanding kind of the list of possible offenses that can't be kind of dispensed with through arbitration? Is it another major union contract? If folks are watching Boston, what should they watch? 
Well, I mean, I think certainly with respect to this contract, um, you know, we're going to do the same thing we did, which is we're going to talk to the police, we're going to talk to the community, we're going to talk to religious leaders, we're going to talk to activists, you know, we're going to huddle up with our own policy folks, and we're going to determine what we all need and how to balance the equities and what comes in the next contract, which we're going to have to do in about a year. Um, so I think with respect to the police contract, I don't want to presage necessarily what we're going to do. We certainly have some ideas on things we want to achieve. But, you know, we did promise an open and expansive process with a lot of stakeholders, and we fully intend to vindicate that. So I don't want to get too far on a limb about what we're going to do without that opportunity. But I mean, I would say, uh, you know, writ large on collective bargaining, I think our our point of view is that collective bargaining is more a state of mind than a process. I mean, one of the things that Boston and various administrations have made the choices they've made and they had the reasons for doing what they did. But I mean, I would say one of the things we want to get away from and the mayor has enunciated, you know, repeatedly is being able to settle contracts before they expire. I mean, this is one problem that, you know, the city and, and public employers in general, I mean, a contract will expire, you know, its various terms will continue in force and, you know, you'll blow through a contract deadline by a year before you start negotiating. It's just, you know, look, it's for recruitment, for the morale of the workforce, it's a bad way to do business because the rent, you know, for our city employees or a gallon of milk is not waiting for us to get our act together to do collective bargaining. Folks need a raise when they need a raise. And that's an important piece of what we're doing. I mean, we're still digging out of a hole that we inherited, as as Gin, I think, uh, referred to, or possibly you, Jennifer, 48 contracts when we walked in the door were expired. No mayor's ever faced that. But we're still digging out of that hole because, you know, all the ones we did in the first year that we were here were already two years gone by the time we reached them. So they're expiring again. So we're, we're you know, we're getting ready to do that in, in this next round you know, where we're going for a longer period, you know, it's our goal to reach these, get people paid, and then make sure from here on out to the extent that we can do it, that we never let a contract expire again without another contract ready to go. It's just a good way to treat your workforce. And that's what this mayor is all about. Thanks again to Lou Mandarini for joining us on the podcast. And thank you for listening. I'm Jennifer Smith here again with Gindumptious. Our producer is John Gee. Leave a rating and review wherever you're hearing this now if you ever want to help other folks find us. And email podcast at commonwealthbeacon.org if you ever want to get in touch directly. We'll be back in your ears next week. May your holidays be bright. <laughs>